Welcome to the Game of Loans podcast. I'm your host, Sam Norris. Today, our guest is award-winning property investor, Safe Dursey. I am was expecting a lot from this episode, I must admit, but I got more than I was expecting. I was thinking we were going to chat property, but we actually ended up talking how to run a property business, which is a massively underrated thing that is not spoken about enough in property circles, actually how to run a proper property business with, and this is the little buzzword that we used in this episode, vertical integration. And if you want to know how that works, keep listening. Make sure you go and follow me over on Instagram at the Sam Norris. And if you're loving this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone whilst you're listening and upload it to your stories on Instagram and tag me in it. Let's get on with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Game of Loans podcast. And today we're actually uh, privileged to have um, Safe Dursey on the show because, Safe, you've only just gone and won a, a Property Investors Award recently. So we're actually in the in the presence of an award-winning property investor. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sam. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, so let, I tell you what, let's um, let's start with that because I've got to say before we before I get you to introduce yourself to to everyone. I think you probably won two awards that night because I was there um, at the awards. You Not only did you actually win your award, but you definitely won the award for the best celebration as well. Um, don't, talk, don't forget the limbo contest as well. Don't forget the limbo contest. Oh, did you, did you win the limbo contest? I did. I no, did, yeah. so, so, so <laughs> triple award winning uh, property investor. But talk me through the celebration because was that planned? Was that, or, or was it just, I'm that, so elated? that genuinely was just a natural celebration. I wouldn't normally celebrate like that. Like for everyone that knows me, that's not me, but that was just a natural celebrate. You know, I mean, we've, we've never ever entered into any award ceremonies before. We've never won any awards, obviously, because we've never entered into any either. And this is the first year we've ever entered into something. You know, we've had our head down. We've been quite busy with everything that we've been doing. And, um, you know, I got to talking to a few people. I think it was Helen Chorley. And then we said, look, why don't you go for it? You know, go for this award. And we did. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't expect anything from it. I just thought, you know what, let's do it. Um, looking back at it, it's quite expensive entering into wards and, you know, trying to get down there, booking hotels and stuff like that. But, you know, it made it all worthwhile when we kind of won that award. So, yeah, it was just it was just a really proud moment. You know, as entrepreneurs, we never celebrate stuff. We're always kind of like just onto the next deal, onto this, onto that. And I think for me, it was a real big wake up moment of, you know, shit, some, something tangible has happened here to tell me that there's a form of success. Not that it is success, but it's a form of, you know, just celebrating the wins along the way, right? No, I, I certainly feel you there. I've, um, I know what it's like. You, you're, you are constantly, you, it's difficult to consolidate in, in, in terms of running a business and what we do. And I think sometimes having that kind of physical manifestation of success in the, in the form of, of an award allows you to actually take a step back and go, we're doing all right here, actually. Clearly, we're doing something right because it's being recognised by, you know, the, the, the wider property public. So so congratulations on that. Congratulations on the fantastic celebration. I, I didn't realise that you won the, uh, the Limbo competition. So congratulations on that as well. Um, was it, I did say, was it you down to you and um, Elizabeth Warburton maybe towards the end or something? Uh, no, I think there was, a, there was another guy. I think Elizabeth was maybe the third place and then there was another yeah. guy um, uh, before, sorry, that came after me. But yeah, so... Uh, 
yeah, that'll be that was a, that was an interesting competition for sure. Stiff, stiff competition there. There's, there's a lot, lot, lot of limbo talent. I, I was deciding to watch from the bar area um, on the, on that one, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a cracking competition. But look, we've we've held off long enough. Um, Safe. Look, before we get really into the nuts and bolts of this, um, love for you to sort of introduce yourself properly um, to the listeners and maybe just give us a little bit of a, an insight into how you got into property and then sort of what you're sort of more focusing on now before we get into uh, into the, as I said, the nuts and bolts of things. Yeah, sure. So again, I just, you know, I want to keep it quite high level for everyone because I'm sure some people know my story, but for those that, that don't know my story, so um, basically graduated and did pharmacy. So I did pharmacy for about five years. I did pharmacy after that in terms of the actual working in a pharmacy for about two years before I kind of thought, right, I need to do something different here. Um, and I started actually not in property. I started in a, a in a non-property business. So it was more of a sort of pharmaceutical healthcare related business, uh, made some money from that and then decided, right, rather than spending it and basically not having anything to show for it, you know, how can I sustain this money? And that's when I thought, OK, let me take money out of this company and then put it into another company that's purely solely focused on property investment. And I was very much looking at stuff from a long term point of view, wasn't interested in the short term. It was more long term. Um, that was back in sort of oh, 15, between 2015, 2017. Um, 2017 to 18 is when we really set up the proper corporate structures and entities of our property businesses. And I kind of went from buying one property in 2015, I bought another three properties in 2017, and fast forward to today, 2022, we've bought and sold over 150 properties in that period. So we've really accelerated what we've done. Um, but that's kind of, yeah, just just high level in terms of our story and journey from kind of start to, to where we are today. Yeah, Do you know, I, I, I love I love what you're saying there because um, and I'm sure you see it, too, because you must get a lot of people reaching out to you, asking you for advice, you know, and, and how how you can get into property um, is the phrase, isn't it? How do I get into property? And you know what? What you've done there, I actually think is the best way of getting into property. And that's actually learning how to run a business first. And for me. I look, you know, I, I'm exactly the same as you. In fact, I'm just a bit behind you. I just, I run my property, uh, my, sorry, my brokerage business at the moment. And I know that I will follow a very similar path in, in so far as when the time is right, the profits of this business will probably, in, you know, make their way into a, a, a property business. Do you, do you believe that's, that is actually where, where, where a lot of people go wrong is that they actually don't diversify. They're just so reliant on just property as their only source of income. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, if anyone that follows me on social media, they know I'm a big advocate of you don't need to necessarily quit your job. You can. And if you wanted to, that's fine. But make sure that's actually what you need to do first. But there's nothing wrong with either having a solid job that gives you a trading income or a trading business that gives you a trading income, but something that brings the active day to day income, right, of your day to day. And then that money can be used towards your day-to-day -day living expenses, your shopping, your heating, your bills, your mortgages, et cetera. And any surplus of that should then go into property. And, and that could be property investing, whatever it is that you, that you want to basically get into. But, you know, we run, we still to today run trading businesses and property investment businesses, right? It just so happens that our trading businesses are property related, but it doesn't have to be. So your trading business could be a, a job. If you want to call it that, if you enjoy it and you get paid well, why leave that? You know, it seems ridiculous that you would want to leave that. Or if you have a trading related business that's non-property or in your case, obviously it's some way, shape or form involved in loaning of money towards property investors, then that's absolutely fine. And a large part of that comes down to you then get a property business that's very much focused on long term growth, 
um, compounding of you know your income and you're not dependent on that income so you're then not in a place of desperation you're in a place of building up this great long-term uh, wealth building you know vehicle which is what we do and that's why on the property side of things we keep it so simple it's just single s don't really want to hear from them just want straightforward simple things they don't yield very very well they don't throw off all this massive cash flow but i know in 10 15 20 30 years time i'd look at them and they've gone up the value you know that's that's kind of what i'm interested in yeah i, I do you know and i, and I you, this is genuinely like music to my ears because the amount of people that i speak to that are you know they've they've seen the new cool thing you know recently it's been like oh service accommodation everyone's got to be in service accommodation it's brr you know it's it's uh it's commercial to residential conversions it's all that kind of stuff but you know what i i always say to people what what does your property business look like when it's done you know when when you when you're when are you going to be satisfied with it and why why is is it is that 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 kind of idea in your head and then what are you actually trying to get out of it what you've just said there, Safe, is, is just highlighting to me thoughtful property investing. You know what you want to get out of it and you know how to get there. And it's amazing how people get, I think, so wound up in the, um, that I've, you know, I've got to be a proper property investor. I've got to do these things that are amazing that, you know, that are, are, are new and I've got to reinvent the wheel and, and all this kind of stuff. When the reality is, there's a path that's been particularly well trodden in this country. And yes, we've had a lot of battering in our industry recently with tax changes and all that sort of stuff. But the reality of it is, is property investing at its core has been going on for quite some time. And for the vast majority of that, it's actually been a relatively simple strategy. It's only really in the last sort of decade or so that a lot of these other strategies have become buzzwords, if you like. And, and I really yeah. like the fact that you, you, you've done that. Is, is that kind of thoughtfulness part part of it, or is it was it a kind of a case of we're going to start here and we're going to build, but actually you got to the point where you're going, we don't really need to. This is this is working. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I I started out very much in that mindset of you know the the classic word of strategy, in which case we know today that doesn't mean strategy if you're really in business. But my strategy when I first started off was HMOs very much. So I started off in terms of right, let me look at non Article Four areas, buy a residential house, convert into HMO, get the classic, you know yield-based valuation, all the rest of it. And then I quickly, and, and it was out of necessity, I ran out of cash, basically. I didn't have any money in the bank. I had all of these assets, which was great. I had problematic tenants. And then it got to a point where I was like, this isn't really what I've intended to set out to do. And then it forced me to sell some of those HMOs, which then got me into the thought process of, hold on a minute, I've gone from no cash in the bank to all of a sudden cash in the bank plus profit, you know, tangible profit, not just it's worth this and we bought it for this it's tangible profit so then it kind of made me really strip everything back and say what do i actually want to get out of this and then that's when i thought look hmo service accommodation all of these buzzwords if you want to call it that that's all the trading style of income right so that's a very active income you need a lot of time you need a lot of effort you can separate that out so you can just as an example have a rent to HMO or rent to SA business where you do that, that's your cash flow, that's your income, that's your trading income. Use your surplus cash to buy simple buy to lets or blocks of flats, whatever you want to call it, right? But keep those two things separate. The biggest problems I see in properties where everyone has all their eggs in one basket. So all I do is buy, refurbish and refinance HMOs. That's where I take my income out of, that's my long-term growth. Doesn't really make sense if you think about it. And let me give the listeners one thing to think about, right? If you think HMOs are going to give you your cash flow plus capital appreciation, yes, they probably could give you a cash flow, but 
how could they give you a capital appreciation if the yield based valuation is very much dependent on income, right? So mixing the two together, you know, yes, rents are going to go up, but to a degree, but really your your valuation based on, on your capital appreciation is all based on income. So if your income's not really going up that much, your property is not going up in value. So try and get capital appreciation from assets that do go up in value, i.e. a three bed semi-detached house where an owner occupier could be buying that or an investor or anyone. So it's open to the whole market, hence why you get capital appreciation versus HMO, which is only suited towards a HMO specific investor at the back end. Yeah, there's two things there that I want to pick up on. Um, the first is you mentioned something that I was going to kind of mention off the back of this because you, you you talked about that you've got property related businesses, which I think is a really great idea. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan of whatever really you know gets you going, whatever gets you up in the morning, whatever gets you excited, try and find a business in that. Um, and for a lot of people, that isn't property and that's actually okay. Don't worry about it. Um, but if you do love property, there are ways of starting businesses that, that, that allow us to, to have that, um, sort of build that, I guess you call it the wider business um, where you've got your investment, you've got your, you know, and your, your trading businesses. Um, and yeah, the H, um, the rent to S, uh, SA, rent to HMO model, I think is great. I was literally talking to um, a potential new client this morning about this who said that he had, he was, he had started um, doing this. And I, I asked him the question of, you know, how are you finding it? How are you actually uh, finding managing these properties? He goes, oh, it's a, it's a real headache. You know, we are, we're speaking to the tenants all the time. They're ringing us at all times of day or night. And I said to him, I said, look, if you don't mind me saying, you've got this whole rent to rent thing wrong. Because, I mean, look, when I'm talking to lenders and I've got clients that do rent to rent, I don't say rent to rent because they get spooked. I say they're property management companies because that's actually what you should be doing is you should be thinking of it as I'm creating a property management company because number one, you create a nice cash flowing business. Number two, you learn how to manage properties, but you also build a team out that can actually do that in a professional manner. Um, and and three, it means you're going to save money in the long run because you can manage all your properties through your own manage, property management company. So so that's great. And I, and I like the fact that you, you brought that up because I think that's a massive thing for a lot of people that don't necessarily have the cash, but they can start a property related business and rent to rent slash property management, I think is a is, is a great, great way of doing that. Um, I'm literally in the process at the moment of discussing with a potential business partner, um, you know, looking at some sort of property management uh, division of what we're doing um, because there's a massive overlap with our clients that we can you know we can offer them that extra service so um, well they, they call it the, the the business vertical don't they actually bring yeah. in businesses in to, to that will complement and work with the businesses that you already have so con constantly thinking about that um, and the next thing after that it's just completely blown out of my head because I just started uh, started chatting what, did, <laughs> what were you saying what were you saying after that about the um, Oh, you know, I, was thinking, I was saying about kind of separate, keeping things separate and separating things out. Yeah, that's it. And, and and that's that's the second part of that, which I think is really, really massively important, which is actually I like to look at when I say my business, I actually like to think of it as like a lot of people do, like a, a holding company that you would have um, a, that, that could own a multiple amount of different types of businesses that include the property business or businesses sometimes. Um, yeah. And, and I think what that should have is multiple strands and you do have your, you know, your, your investment side, your trading side or your multiple trading sides. And I think you're absolutely spot on there. And again, I think a lot of people 
they don't they don't think about this in in that kind of methodology they they'll just look at it as i'm a property investor now so that that that's what i do and the other stuff doesn't really it just sort of folds into it rather than actually you know keep keeping things separate like that so i'm, I'm glad that you um i'm glad that you brought that up um one other thing that you you were sort of talking about struggles at the beginning with with hmo and 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 things like that now i guess this folds into what we were talking about in terms of building building the business how, how do you actually manage your portfolio now do you have a um uh, you know do you have a third party company that, that manage your portfolio for uh, for you or is that something that you've managed to work into your overall property sort of business yeah so i think you talked about verticals which is quite important so within within business in general you want complementary businesses that work hand in hand no overlap and almost what we call push in the same direction so if you had multiple businesses that basically were totally different to each other one would pull one would push and, and basically they'd go against each other and you almost pull your hair out because you're like this is not working whereas if you have multiple complementary businesses they all work very very similar in tandem with each other then it all starts to work and that's how people own multiple businesses the other way people own multiple businesses is by having business partners involved in every single thing sort of separately so for us, yeah, we very much have a property management company. That's basically, we've got obviously a business partner, Reese, who runs that day to day. And that is predominantly, that started off managing our own portfolio and our own properties. And that kind of grew. And I think now we probably manage around 500 properties nationwide. Um, we run a remote management system and, and it's a very, it wasn't easy. We had a lot of pain to get to where we are today, but we can now manage a property, whether it's in the South of England, North of England, Midlands, wherever it is, all by using technology and all by being able to consolidate everything virtually without having physical premise or, or premises uh, in multiple locations. So that's been a, a really good learning curve. And once we've built the management foundation, that then allows Reese to say, well, naturally I could do rent to rents, I could do this, I could do that. And he, he was able to build on that because we had the infrastructure, we had the staff. I think within that business, we've probably got about eight different team members um, so it means that it's not all him doing everything. And it means we have a specific process. You know, what's the maintenance process? There's a form to fill in if you've got a maintenance issue. There's a form to fill in if you want to basically, basically apply for one of the properties or be onboarded as a tenant, et cetera. Yeah, so there's a whole host of processes and, and procedures to be in there. So, yeah, we set up the, the property management business for ourselves and it kind of just grew from there, really, because we, we got economies of scale. Yeah, I think I'm glad you used that uh, that word right at the end, scale, because I think until you've got those processes and systems in place and the right people, um, or even you know a, a map of what right, the right people look like, what the right team looks like, it is difficult to grow. Um, and I think even just building a you know a, a property portfolio that, in my view, should be treated like a like a business. You should be looking yeah. at right. There are multiple facets of building a property portfolio. There's the finding of the properties. There's the raising of the finance in probably a multitude of different ways, whether it's debt, investor, you know, whatever equity. Um, you know, there's there is there's there's the aftercare, the management, the, the liaising with the agents, but all those types of things. And this is this is something that I do see a lot of, particularly. I mean, I tend to get two different types of clients come to me when they're first starting out and they want to be a property investor or when they're sort of changing strategy or whether they might have outgrown um, maybe using a broker that, that will primarily work with like residential properties and stuff like that. And um, and a lot a lot of the time I see that the thing that is really holding back the investor is the fact that 
yeah, they've got some great yields. They've got some wonderful properties. You can project that they're going to be seeing some fantastic capital appreciation over the years. Cash flow is good, but they just don't have the time. And they've actually, they've given up a job <laughs> to give themselves a new job, if you like, which is um, paying them probably the same amount of money, but doing double double the amount of time. What, what, um, I mean, look, may, maybe you didn't do it the right way around, and you can sort of talk about talk about that. But how did you start going about building out your team, and did you get it right first time, or have you kind of built a system now of of, of building that team out that that you think sort of you've learned from sort of mistakes and stuff like that? Yeah, um, I think it's probably one of the hardest things in business is is first of all having a team, and second, so managing the team, and second of all, sort of building that team in, in the first place. So. Um, you know, you, you can go either one or two ways, right? You can start off with family or friends that you know quite well that can kind of help you on a budget because as anyone does with, with a startup, right, you've got to bootstrap yourself and be able to kind of, you know, do things at a budget. Unless you're a tech startup and you're going to go raise a three, four million pound cap raise and you're going to go out and hire talent, which, you know, we probably most of us don't have the luxury of doing, then you've really got to factor in low overheads, be as lean as possible, but try and get as max a maximum value as possible. So what you would end up doing is this is a typical journey of an entrepreneur, right? You do everything yourself. So you're self-employed, that classic self-employed. You basically have a very demanding um, job, essentially, is what you've got, right? But you're self-employed, so you work 24-7. You burn out, so you get to a point of burnout, and then you realize, right, I need to take someone on, right? But you've got to maximize yourself to bring enough income to allow you to take someone else on. You don't have the luxury of starting out and saying, I'm going to employ someone straight away. So you do that, you get to burn out, you look at employing someone, it might be your brother, your sister, your mum, whoever it is, a family member that, you know, has a bit of time, it might be part time to start off with, you pay them something reasonable, or you bring in a business partner, right? That That's kind of the ways to start off. But you've got to hustle, you've got to start somewhere, and you've got to start getting traction. The most important thing is getting sales, because if you're not getting sales, you can't start to build. So focusing on the delivery in the start is probably the worst thing. Right. You classically see it on Dragon's Den, you know, I'm trying to perfect my product. I'm trying to get this. I'm trying to have the best customer service. No one cares because you might not survive another couple of months, you know. So why, why deliver something perfectly if you're going to die as a business? So really, really important. Then you get to a point where you actually take your first employee on. Now, your first employee could be a, a lot of the time, you know, it's probably going to be like a, a assistant, basically. So we call it an executive assistant, an EA. That could be virtually, so you can have a virtual EA or it could be a, a physical EA, whatever it is, but you basically have someone that's gonna assist you, right? And that is the first part of you outsourcing what you're doing. So all of a sudden you went from burnout to, oh, okay, a bit of relief now, someone's helping me here. And then they say, okay, well, how do you want me to do it? And you end up spoon feeding them everything, in which case you realize if you spoon feed, they'll come back to you every time. So then you think, right, how am I gonna do this without me being involved? You start to say, right, let me give them a responsibility as opposed to a task base. So giving people responsibilities means that they are responsible for everything end to end rather than just, right, I finished that task. What do you want me to do now? So that starts to buy your breathing space. Then you can take on your first official employee after your executive assistant. And that could be then a case of, right, can you map out what you do day to day? Can we then find someone that has that role and responsibility? Maybe wrap a bit of metrics around it. Maybe wrap a bit of a KPI around it. And that's how you start to really build a team, right? And, and there's no wrong or right way of doing it. It's just trial and error, the good old fashioned way. Um, and you will, you know, fire a lot of people along the way. You're also, you're gonna hire the great, great people along the way. But every time you find a gem, hold them close. And every time you hire someone that you think they're not great, 
try and get rid of them as quickly as possible in, in the nicest way possible. I'm going to put that that way until you end up with this massive team of gems, essentially. But you need to combine sales with processes, with systems, with metrics, with KPIs and the right team members. And then eventually that builds an organization. Yeah, I love that. And, and genuinely, that could just be everything you just said there could just be the blueprint, you know, for, for, for building a team. One thing that we try and do in our team, you talk about the burnout uh, and all that kind of stuff, which is I think generally people wait too long to, to employ, but they, they'll either do it too soon or they'll, they'll wait too long. And and neither of those you really want to be doing. We, we have something we call the 60% rule in our business, which is... Um, I, I, I feel like at the moment, I'm actually spending most of my week calling all of my staff and asking them what percentage capacity that they're at, because I'm just so keen on making sure that they're all, they're all okay. And what was weird was I had one that said they were like 50% and another they said they were at 90% last week. So I'm like, okay, you need to be passing some of your responsibilities over clearly to, to this person. Um, but we have this rule, the rule, the rule of, uh, of 60%, which is when we, when we feel that we're at 60% capacity, it's at that point that we start thinking about what we're going to do next um so that could be 60 percent in terms of the business as a total or individually so you know for example if i've got one of my brokers says i'm at 60 percent capacity we go okay great so we're getting in early before you're reaching that burnout stage i think you start to feel burnt out when you sort of hit that 80 90 percent um and we definitely want to be getting there before you get to 100 percent, because otherwise you haven't got even got any room to even think about how to how to change things but when you're at 60 percent, you're at that manageable level you can actually say right we are able to think what what changes can we make to ensure that although we've got the capacity to go up a little bit more in terms of what you're doing day to day um number one if you go higher than 78 percent, i think that's when maybe mistakes start creeping in as well because you're starting to feel the, the push but secondly, we've actually got the time now to be able to think about, do we change our process slightly? Do we bring in a software? Do we look at outsourcing using a virtual assistant to pick up some of the stuff that you're doing? Or um, do we just simply need another person, you know, that's doing your job? You know, so at the moment, we've got two brokers in our business. One of them is me. I, I won't be doing that forever because that's not where my um, where I know that my my. Uh, you know, I'm best suited within the business. It, it's more sort of managing, guiding and and, and growing. So um, so we know that when both myself and Chanel, my other broker, get to that point where we're at that sort of between 60, 70% sort of capacity, that's realistically when we have to start searching for another broker. Because of course, um, one thing we didn't mention there was it takes a bit of time to find these people as well. Yeah. You know, you've got to, not only have you got to find them, you've got to interview them potentially three, maybe four times, depending on how stringent you want to be with things. And then there's an onboarding process. And realistically, you're not going to feel the benefit of that person in your organization for probably three months, I find, um, because they've got to get used to the way you do things, that your processes, your systems, and then they've got to actually start performing as well and get up to that get up to that level so um have you found that as well sort of you know in terms of the struggling sometimes to, to actually find the right time to to bring start bringing people up yeah it's, it's always a tough one but essentially what you've just described there is is finding having enough slack in your business that you know you're not going to feel that burnout or the team's not going to feel that burnout and essentially what, what you never want to get to in a business right is customers chasing you because if customers are chasing you just purely just for communication of why haven't you come back on this? Why haven't you come back on that? There's a problem, right? So in order to be able to kind of always have that slack, you need to know, and that might be, like I said, 60%, it might be 70% for some people, it might be 50%, I don't know, it depends on, on the business. For us, 
it usually takes about two months, um, maybe even three months, like you said, to, to hire end to end. But there is a one, one or two months worth of training where they have to go through all the processes. They have to go through everything. They'll shadow before they actually start doing and taking on responsibility. So you're right. You have to hire ahead of time. We never always get it right, by the way. You know, it's, it's always a tough one. But we do track KPIs and metrics. And if we feel like we're falling down on things or if we're like, you know, generally speaking, we can see, I don't know, maybe we're going to go through an acquisition of a business, for example, on the lettings or something like that that's ahead. Yeah, we need to start looking at hiring someone. So, yeah, it, it's not probably as strategic as what you're doing in terms of the 60%. We haven't really quantified it in that way. But it is very much a case of all of the department heads are aware of it and they will come to me ahead of time when they need when they need to look at employing someone. Yeah, good. No, I, I like that. Definitely like that. Right. I couldn't have you on, on the show without asking you a little bit about what the bloody hell is going to happen this year, <laughs> because yeah. I think it's been, you know, 2023 has been on people's lips for months. Um, you know, what's going to happen next year? I know I get asked it a lot in terms of mortgage rates and all that sort of stuff. Um, but for you, when maybe you were starting to think about, you know, back at the beginning of 22, projecting what you're going to be looking at doing this year, next year, five years time. Has that plan changed because of kind of where the market's at? And and would you think you 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 have a plan for 2023 or is it a little bit of just 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 keep going and uh, and and see how things turn out? Oh, our, our plan changes, you know, constantly. So our overall, I guess, uh, business model doesn't necessarily change or in terms of what we want to do. But day to day, week to week, month to month, things change because if you don't adapt, you literally, especially in the last three years, you know, you wouldn't have survived it, let alone kind of thrived for the next couple of years. So a large part of what we're focused on. So let me kind of give you a helicopter view of our various training businesses and what we actually do, because that will give you a better idea of, of how we look at things. So if we look at our group structure in general, so we've got the investment side of the business, right? That's very much SDGB properties, you can see here, that's our brand. And that's very much, you know, we own maybe 80, 90 single let properties or blocks of flats nationwide um, and we bought it we've done something to add value to it and then we've refinanced it and we've kind of held it so that's what we're doing there we've then got the letting side of the business called letco as, as everyone kind of knows it as and we evolved that business from just purely lettings to because we had loads of people asking us to jv with them do this that and the other we kind of said look what well, we, we won't do that but what we will do is we can help you build the portfolio so we've got the portfolio building side of things so that's everything from acquisitions to project management to letting so they all end up in the ecosystem of lettings right and part of that is well how are we going to acquire a property for the customer and for ourselves essentially um because we're not the type of people that's going to go to an estate agent or whatever so we decided right let's set up our own sort of we, we call it a cash buying business so we're very much a if anyone's dealt with we buy any car it's the same thing it's a we buy any home type business but we call it property buys today very much all on the digital marketing front and a large part of that business is people that need to sell their houses quickly for whatever reason and that could be death divorce debt you know all sorts of stuff then they'll come to us because property is a very illiquid asset class so it takes you on average six to nine months to sell it one in three transactions fall through so if you genuinely just think about it, if you genuinely need your cash out of the property within four weeks or even less, who could you go to? Because if you go to an auction house, it's a two to three month period. If you go to an estate agent, it's a six to nine month period. Who's going to actually give it to you? And most investors, advertisers, cash buyers, they're not really cash buyers and they're not going to give it to you. So there is a place in our industry for, for people like us. And that's how we acquire the properties on behalf of customers and ourselves. Now, 
because I'm at the cold face of that part side of the business, I see the motivation. I see the things that are changing. You know, I said this to someone the other day, 2021, I kid you not, we had someone calling us up saying, I need to sell this. I'll take 80% of the market value. Uh, and then we were like, so what are you looking to do with the money? He said, oh, I've got a crypto investment. I need to make ASAP. Um, so, you know, we, we see all sorts of stuff, but we've seen the motivation changing across the last couple of years, a couple of months. End of last year, we saw a lot more leads in that business from people wanting to sell because they didn't have many options. 2021, it was practically impossible to get a deal done. 2022 was a bit easier. Um, but then all of a sudden in January, especially because people have kind of sat on things, January seems to be a pretty busy month on the property side of things. And all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I can't really take as much of a discount as I, as I, want, as I was going to take pre-Christmas or change in circumstances. And we are still not seeing that level of motivation to sell those properties at a discount. Vendors are acting as if it's 2021. Buyers are acting as if it's 20, you know, 2008. And that gap and disparity is still there. And until that gap you know, narrows, I think we're still going to see this property market of inflated prices still and not many people wanting to reduce their price. But bear in mind as well, you know, property investors have started to come to the realization there is not going to necessarily be this massive crash like 08, right? It's a softening and there's going to be opportunities from week to week, but there is not going to be this major crash. So investors are now coming back into the market. And as you know, interest rates and mortgages have started to stabilize. So that's given them even more confidence. So I don't think 2023 is going to be any crash by any means. I think there's going to be a bit of softening. I think the opportunities will be less evident than people think they're going to be. So it's going to be a case of when you can grab a deal, grab it. Don't wait for a specific point. Um, but also, likewise, you know, we don't know whether the property prices are going to go down further. So don't wait for that to happen. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the thing is as well with the market is there's so many micro markets as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, it wasn't that long ago. I think somebody said to me that, um, you know, we if you think of what's happened between when the credit crunch happened um, and, and to now, realistically we can say that we've had a bit of a property boom to be quite honest with you however yeah. there is actually one part of the country that hasn't actually gone back above the pre-credit crunch prices in in durham believe it or not the average price for property is still lower than it was in 2007. so that just highlights that sometimes there are different parts of the country that are going to feel the strain in different ways i think that's really really important um but i think you're also absolutely right that it's not going to be as deep as everyone wants i think we're going to have a, 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 a sort of a shallow, long shallow recession and i think that's going to be mimicked in the property market um but certainly you're absolutely right when, they, when there's opportunities you know you grab them and there are going to be plenty of opportunities um over the next 18 months to uh, to two years and i think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to benefit massively from their for the, this recession as, as, as happens every recession. One thing that you mentioned there um, was in terms of the cash buying. Now you might be, and anyone listening to this might, might think this is a very strange thing for a mortgage broker to say, but I'm always encouraging my clients to buy cash. <laughs> um, I lose out on a transaction, but I always say, you know, my, my job actually, yeah, as much as you know, we are a mortgage brokerage or a finance brokerage, our, our, our ultimate goal is to, is to make our clients successful. And we've got to advise them on whatever's gonna, gonna help that happen because the more successful they are, you know, the better that benefits us in the long run because we want loads of, of really awesome clients that are really successful. Um, and of course, it's just nice that they're successful too. You know, we're not we're not horrible, greedy people. Um, so, so I think that this year more than ever, I think you're absolutely right. Human beings in general, and I actually think that uh, the Brits personify this perfectly, 
we do like to stick our head in the sand a little bit when problems go wrong. And I think that's not going to help us this year because lots of people are going to get themselves into financial problems. Lots of lots of homeowners are going to, you know, should be able to predict that they will get to a point at some point this year where they can't afford to own their own home anymore. And they need to either think about how they're going to change that sooner rather than later, or they think about how they're going to sell their, their property and go back into the, into rented. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen for most people. They are going to get themselves into a pickle. They're going to need somebody like you to come along and say, right, you're in trouble, but give us two to three weeks so we can get the job done. Um, how, well, two things I was going to ask you about this. I'm, I'm assuming the funds from this come predominantly from the cash flow from, from your other businesses. Have you actually ever been in a position yet where, you know, someone has come to you and you do, you actually don't have the, the, the cash available at the moment. And what do you do in those circumstances? And also the other part of that the question is, how much of an advantage do you think cash buyers will have this year over other, other years? Yeah, so cash buyers for the last two or three years have not had any advantages in all honesty, because everyone's had cash from various sources and obviously been saving up a lot of money. Um, so we've not really seen that advantage being used by cash buyers. The only thing that we saw for the last couple of years was things that made the property, you know, unmortgageable or for whatever reason, just put a lot of people off. That's the only place that cash buyers really came into it, not because they had the cash, but more a case of because they were happy to take on more problematic stuff, right, that normal people weren't. But if you looked at just a vanilla terrace house or vacant three bed semi, whatever it is, you know, you had no advantage. That stuff was selling way over what it was worth because it was quite easy for people to, to be seen as a, as a project. And um, so look, from a cash buying point of view, yes, it's called cash buying, but we do we do kind of blend a few bits. So we blend our own capital into it and we do blend, you know, facilities as well. So you can go to whatever, a lender or a bank, whoever it is, and, and almost get them to underwrite you for a certain amount of money, right? And you kind of draw down from that facilities you probably know. Now that could also be bridging loans. So that should have pit people off and think, I don't have the cash. It's like, that. that's also, you know, that can be done for bridging loans. It's just, you've got to make sure that everything gets done pretty quickly if you are going to go down that route. But I think the point to make here is when you're looking at doing this, I call it the supercharged model, right? If you're going to be buying a hundred grand house with a 25 grand deposit, traditionally, that 25 grand, if it's on a five year fixed term, for example, you're going to kill off that capital for five years. So that's it, your, your capital's gone. So you need to be able to work a job or do whatever to create that capital again. Whereas if you're buying something with a bridge or cash, whatever, or a blend of both, let's just say, you're then able to do either the buy, refurbish, refinance model or buy it and then sell it straight into auction or whatever it is that people want to do. That allows you to supercharge what you're doing because you're effectively recycling your capital in one way, shape or form, which is, if you want to call it, our secret ingredient to be able to kind of scale what we did pretty quickly. Um, so that's just something for people to think about in general is, you know, if you can offer a service to people where you can buy their property pretty quickly you can a get it at trade prices i'm sure they can speak to you about getting a bridging loan as well because there's some pretty quick bridging loans out there um, and as long as they're not looking at the rate because if everyone's rate focused they're not going to get the quickest bridging product right um and they can solve a problem and they need to refinance it and hold it or or sell it then i, I think they can replicate the model you know yeah, I think you know. Look, I, I I could talk about bridging till the cows come home. So um, so you you you've, you've done completely the wrong thing there, mentioning the B word in front of me. But I I one thing I'm actually working on a lot at the moment, and I think this comes down to you know we were talking about um you know businesses and, and stuff earlier. One of my massive um 
sort of ideas when it comes to businesses, just consistently and constantly looking at how you can add more and more and more value. And one of the things we found recently is, yeah, we've got a lot, lot more people coming to us because they they want the use of a bridging loan. And I think this year is going to be massive on that on that front. We work with the bridging lenders that we know give our clients the best service. Um, there are some that are definitely on a blacklist with us, and there are some yeah. that are on a we've never used them, so why would we list? Um, and I'm sure some of them are absolutely amazing. Um, but what we're actually one thing I think um, you, you mentioned there is you've got to be able to know how you've got to have a process in place for the speed um, of, of actually acquiring a property. And again, I think this is where a lot of people get this wrong. They do go for cheapness over process. Um, I often say to my clients, there are three things, three priorities when you're looking at a loan, um, when you're choosing a lender, and that is speed, flexibility and price. Only when you don't need speed or flexibility can you focus on price. And um, sometimes that goes in, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, but what we, what I'm actually going to be working on a lot um, coming up is, is actually creating helpful tools and content and stuff that we can share with our clients where they are maybe taking out a bridge for the first time to really pre-frame them into what needs to get done. Because, you you know, you'll know this as, as well as anyone safe that, you know, with bridging, um, number one, the touch time in terms of how much you communicate with everyone in the process is, is upped by, you know, a, a scale of probably 10 times, 20 times. Yeah. But you also have a lot of overlap in the things that, that happen. And I think when you are coming into this for the first time, a bridge sounds scary, number one, because of the pricing which, you know, when you actually break it all down and you look at a deal, it shouldn't be as scary because it will work within how the deal how the deal works. And and, um, and if you're good at understanding the figures, you'll be able to do that. Um, but also it, it can be quite scary because it could, I think there's a bit, there's an element of overwhelm to the process. Yes, we can do a bridge in two to three weeks. Absolutely no problem at all. We pick the right lender and we pick the right team of people. You know, we work with the right surveyor that we know are going to get us to get the job done nice and quickly. That we work with a lender who will allow us to do multiple facets of the process all in one go. Um, and of course, and I think this is actually, there's an element of me, it pains me to say it, probably probably more important to get the right solicitor in place and the right broker because um they can make or break a deal absolutely make or break a deal and generally speaking if you're doing a bridge and you're working with a uh, a solicitor that has said to you either they don't like bridging they don't do a lot of bridging or something something you know around that sort of those sort of lines don't use them just don't use them you need someone that when you mention the word bridging loan to them their eyes light up because it's the type of business they love doing. Um, that's what happens to me. I love bridging. Therefore, you know, my eyes light up when I talk to a client about it. I get very excited, as you can possibly probably tell. So I think you're absolutely right. The the acquisition of properties, whether whatever type of finance you're using or whether you're using cash, is something that you need to get absolutely nailed. I, I say to my, my team, we always want the ball to be in the other side of the court. You know, we, yeah. we, we want to be in control of it. And if, any, if if ever it's in our side, we need to know exactly what needs to get done. Or we've already preempted what needs to get done so that, that ball is then just bounced back over as, as soon as possible. You know, always always have it in the seller's side of the court. Um, and, and if you do that, you probably probably won't go wrong. Yeah. And, and also, funny enough, uh, you mentioned solicitors. I took my solicitor and we went and met with our facility lender, basically, and we mapped out the whole process. So we sat with their legal department and we mapped out the whole process what does the whole process look like from start to finish right took out all the niggly bits that didn't really need to be there so we almost helped them to remap that whole process out and 
yeah, that's probably an extreme. Not everyone's going to do that. I mean, because we do so many transactions, we needed to do that. Um, but that's just giving an example of how to basically remove all those roadblocks. Another thing that people always forget about or miss out or don't really focus on is a property control sheet. So, you know, you know, dealing with anyone from a finance point of view, from a brokerage point of view, et cetera, yeah, they want a snapshot of what does your portfolio look like? What are the current loans outstanding? What's your personal you know, finance situation looks like. So you really need to have that property control sheet for your businesses where possible. Plus, just simply, you know, what what do your debts look like? What do your assets look like, person, etc. But if you have all of that and update it regularly and keep it as a live sheet and you can share that with your broker, you know, that, that literally takes out probably, what, 30% of the upfront work that you need to do and the back and forth. Absolutely. Organisation in this industry is such an undervalued quality. Um, and I and I say this to my clients all the time, particularly ones. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to lie. I've had some awkward conversations with some clients in the past where I've just said to we I've had to have one recently where I've spoken to a client. It's, it's taken them sort of three months to to from the first time I spoke to them about remortgaging one of their properties to us. We're still no further down the line because you know we're we're, we're trying to get documents from them. We're trying to get this. And, and, and they keep complaining, saying it's really difficult. And I, and I actually got on the phone to her recently and said, um, it's not difficult. And I'll tell you why, because you're the only person right now that I'm working with that is having a problem with this. And we're working with tens of people right now in terms of live transactions. Therefore, you're the problem. And I'm not meaning saying that in an horrible way, but you're the problem. So therefore, look at ways that you can improve that. My best yeah. clients... When when they when they come back for a remortgage, okay, they know they've worked with us previously. They know that we're quite thorough with our documentation checks and all that kind of stuff. They'll just have a file, and they'll just send us the file, and they've got everything in there. And they know what's in there. I think being in that situation where you know what people are going to ask, you know what questions, what information people need in this process, whether it's lenders, brokers, solicitors, whatever, um, agents, even uh, you know what you know you know what they're going to they they want if you're buying for an agent. Have it already, you know. I think yeah. showing people in the process that you're organising on top of things and in control stimulates them to work to the best of their ability. And I think that's really key: is actually having because you, you can't do everything on your own, as we've already said. But even third parties, your solicitors, your lenders, and, and such, you know, you you want them to be favouring working with you, and they'll do that when they can see that you are responsive, organised, and in control. So I think that's such a, a massive thing that that a lot of lot of uh, property investors could probably you know work on quite frankly absolutely i mean look um safe so i i genuinely have, have have enjoyed this discussion mainly because i don't know if you I, I, I don't know if you if you see this yourself but i certainly see you as somebody that's very process and operational or operationally driven and I certainly fit that description as well. I get very excited about talking about how we improve processes. My next thing that I'm going to be doing after this is talking to my operations manager about all the things we want to implement over the next couple of weeks. And I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> so I could genuinely sit here and talk to you about, you know, the business, I guess, of running a property company um, all day long. But I know that you're a busy guy and I appreciate the time that you've, you've afforded to us and the and the knowledge that you've, you've shared. Um, you know, certainly anyone that's listening to this should be following you, should be keeping up to date with your content. How do they go about doing that safe? Where, where are you putting most of your, your informative content and how can people go and follow you on those channels? Yeah, so I'm, I am on Instagram, so it's just Safe Dersey, so that's S-A-I-F, and then my surname, D-E-R-Z-I. And um, So I'm on Instagram most of the time, to be fair. I've recently started TikTok, but I'm probably not really 
sort of up to speed with that yet. So that's something that I'm working on at the minute and also LinkedIn as well. So again, just my full name on uh, on LinkedIn. But yeah, I'll probably drop you some links and maybe you can share that as well. Absolutely, yeah. They'll be in, if you're listening on the uh, on the podcast, they'll be in the show notes. Um, and if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description down below. So you've got no excuse not to go and follow the awesome content that Safe does. And I've got to say, mate, you're, um, you've are you upped it recently, haven't you? You've got your team in, you've got your videographer and all that kind of stuff now. So the quality of the stuff that you're producing is, is out of this world. So anyone that isn't following Safe, go and do it now. You really are going to get a really thorough property education. So, um, but Safe, thanks ever so much for joining me on the Game Alone's podcast. It's been a genuine delight to have this conversation and um, look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Sam. Yep, that's it. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other Game of Loans podcast episodes, please, I would ask you a massive favour to leave a five-star review. It massively helps me grow the podcast and reach more people that will hopefully enjoy the episodes as much as you have. Thank you so much in advance for this, and I'll hopefully see you on the next episode.